From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Coloradans need to stay home. We'll get the latest on the order from Governor Jared Polis that went into effect this morning and hear how the healthcare system is gearing up to treat more COVID-19 patients. Then, jails and jury trials put people in close quarters, how the criminal justice system is adapting to the pandemic. Plus, right when schools closed, a Denver art teacher opened a virtual classroom for his students. How is everybody doing? Give me a thumbs up if you can hear me. Mr. E says he wants his kids to be happy and busy. It's just a really wonderful way to get together during this crazy time. And a Denver teen who's coming to grips with what the new coronavirus might mean for her senior year of high school. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The state of Colorado must stay at home, except for essential activities, to limit the spread of the novel coronavirus. Governor Jared Polis's order went into effect this morning and will last until April 11th. We'll get to the latest on what Colorado's health workers are seeing and how they're preparing for a surge of COVID-19 patients. But first, I want to introduce you to Aisha Kanu. She's a senior at Northfield High School in Denver. The senior year of high school, it's always full of uncertainty. But barreling toward graduation during a global health crisis? It's a tough pill to swallow that dances, celebrations, the pomp and circumstance, they might not happen. So much has changed since the last time Kanu hung out with friends nearly two weeks ago. When it kind of first started, when I thought it was like a little less serious, like I went to like this little outdoor shopping area in Boulder and like some stores were open. So we kind of like went and shopped around. But that was like my last like outdoor adventure. And now I've been staying inside and I have to stay here, stay at home for my birthday and stuff like that. Kanu just turned 18. Instead of the karaoke night she planned with her friends, she went to the grocery store and had a quiet backyard barbecue with her mom, grandma, and sister. I spoke with her shortly before Denver issued its stay-at-home order, but she said she was already spending her spring break social distancing. Now she keeps up with her friends online. Lots of things that have been on our minds are just like the seriousness of the social distancing. Um... Sometimes I just want to like not care and like, oh, let's just go out and like wanting to like leave our houses so bad and wanting the situation to be over so bad. Um, And I just feel like lots of us just feel like this is like the craziest things that's like happened in like all of our lifetimes and like our parents' lifetimes. It just doesn't seem like real. And lots of people are saying like it feels like the apocalypse. And it's just like one of the worst things to ever like happen. And I just think like lots of us are trying to keep hope and lots of us are staying hopeful. And that's all we can really do right now. She said she can't get away from news about COVID-19. TV news is on in her home and even social media platforms are pushing updates. It's been all over my phone and it's kind of an unavoidable, even like on like Uber Eats and like TikTok and like different apps and stuff like that. Like every single app I go on. So like, learn more about COVID-19. I kind of, like, watch the news for a while, and then I just get, like, stressed about, like, all of the numbers and stuff. So, yeah, I've, like, like noticed, like, I've, like, been getting overwhelmed, and I have to, like, take a step back from all the news I'm seeing. And then there's the uncertainty. What's the future going to look like, and what about those senior year milestones? That's probably the worst thing about it. 
Um, like, prom was supposed to be on April 18th for my school, and I'm not even sure if that's going to happen. I kind of even, like, stopped looking for a prom dress, and, like, for graduation, I don't know, that was supposed to be in May, and I'm kind of hoping, like, things will die down by then, but if we, like, end up, like, not having, like, a full graduation like I imagined, I would be so disappointed. Oh, that would be, like, the worst thing ever, like, it's what everyone like in the like uh, everyone like dreams of like graduating high school moving on to the next step in life like that would be so horrible <laughs> after buying graduation gowns and stuff like that and just after all of the like hype and then build up to the actual graduation day I would be so devastated. That's Aisha Kanu, a senior at Northfield High School in Denver. On Colorado Matters, we're committed to telling your stories, the way coronavirus crisis is affecting you. Email a voice memo to coloradomatters at CPR.org. Governor Jared Polis has taken perhaps the largest step ever to try to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. Today at 6 a.m., a stay-at-home order for the state of Colorado went into effect. Here to update us on that and what we might see over the next few weeks is CPR's health reporter, John Daly. Welcome, John. Hi, Avery. Good morning. What does Polis hope to accomplish by issuing a stay-at-home order? He says while people have been staying at home, more need to do that to slow the spread of this. Uh, There have been stories of of folks uh, maybe not heeding the recommendations as much as they would like. And I think this is just to drive the point home how how absolutely urgent this is. And what exactly does a stay-at-home order mean? Well, essentially it means to avoid unnecessary travel, stay at home, and, and just interact with family members. Only go to the grocery store or places like that uh, uh, if you absolutely need to, or or a doctor if you need to, or to care for someone vulnerable. So it's really uh, about limiting the uh, times where you're out and about and maybe coming into contact with someone else who might have COVID-19. Uh, this, this, the governor says, and he's relying on the best advice from public health experts, is the best way to to really uh, dampen the spread of this virus. And remind us, where do the numbers stand right now as of 9, 12 a.m.? So in Colorado, uh, these numbers came down from the state just yesterday. They're updating these daily. Uh, we have more than 1,000 cases. We went above 1,000 yesterday. 147 people are hospitalized. So that uh, is uh, the, the early wave of this surge that uh, folks are expecting. It's uh, in a lot of counties, 36 counties across the state. More than 8,000 people have been tested. But uh, remember, the testing is lagging behind. So uh, I think these these other numbers are more important. And, and of course, we should mention 19 deaths, 19 people have died now, according to the latest numbers from the state. And there's been nine outbreaks at uh, residential and non-hospital health care facilities. And why did the governor wait until now to issue a stay-at-home order? He says while some are following uh, the earlier recommendations, he had reason to believe that not enough people are staying home. And uh, I think this is just all about uh, heightening the public awareness. And uh, and also, I think there was uh, uh, maybe some conflicting messages from various local governments about uh, what the recommendations were. I think that was probably driving some of this as well.
And let's talk about the expected surge in folks needing acute care and ventilators. Are doctors and hospitals already seeing an uptick in patients that have the coronavirus and need acute care? Uh, Yeah, we are definitely getting anecdotal information of that. Uh, They also anticipate an even bigger surge. And based on Colorado's numbers, our numbers keep going up every day. Uh, The governor yesterday said that Colorado has some of the highest per capita numbers of this virus in the United States. And also, uh, I think uh, folks here, the governor and uh, public health leaders are are looking at what's happened in other parts of the world and in the country. We're talking about Italy, Spain, New York, Seattle, where uh, the healthcare system is really being uh, stressed in a significant way. And uh, I think this is in, t- in anticipation of uh, seeing something similar here. So, uh, but yeah, we're definitely uh, getting getting a, a picture of that. And with those numbers of COVID-19 cases continuing to go up in Colorado, is there a timeline for when doctors expect to see the highest numbers? Uh, not exactly. We're hearing of coming weeks, perhaps. Uh, and, you know, it just depends on, on how all this plays out. This is really unprecedented, so nobody's really sure. But it's it, the, the feeling is that there are going to be a lot more cases uh, and, and hospitals are going to be hit with these soon. Uh, also, we should mention that the testing has been very challenging, and that's uh, made it hard to know exactly where things are with this outbreak. And I understand that it's not just that hospitals will have high numbers, but it's that many will have very sick patients. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. You know, the system is designed to handle a certain number of very sick patients, and these are people who are treated in ICU beds. That's uh, intensive care units. That's a very high level of care. But what if the wave of patients all at once is above what the system can handle, what it's built for, both in terms of the patients and in terms of the beds and ventilators? And that's where those really serious cases come in, when the system gets overwhelmed and then doctors have to make tough choices about who gets care at what level. And that's one of the challenges of this, is that people uh, getting sick, a a number of them are getting very sick. And a number of healthcare workers that you've spoken with see the point that we're at now as critical. Uh, Yeah, frontline hospital workers say the state is at a a pivotal time for addressing this outbreak. Nurses and doctors say they are seeing a surge in COVID patients. Some hospitals report that the numbers of patients are doubling. This is the ones in serious crisis, doubling by the day. Dr. Richard Zane is chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at the CU School of Medicine. He says it's now crunch time. Uh, There's no way to describe it. These next two weeks are going to define how bad the next 18 months are. And he warned that somehow people have gotten complacent with some people thinking that uh, this is just an infectious disease that maybe is attacking old people. He says that's just not true. Young, Young people are getting really sick too. So if you think for one second that you're walking around and you're not going to be touched by this, you're going to be touched by this. And the, the numerical reality is that everybody who gets this disease is going to spread it to somewhere between two and three other people. That becomes exponential. And, you know, he was saying that this is getting personal for people. I, I can relate to this myself, Avery. Uh, a well-known lawyer in Denver, his name is uh, Mike Farley. He's the father of a childhood friend of mine. He died this week. Um, after coming down with COVID just a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, you know, this is what uh, doctors are warning us of, that, that this will touch a lot of lives. John, I'm so sorry to hear that. Are you hearing from frontline nurses and doctors as well? 
Um, I, I've been in touch with some via email. One ER nurse from a Denver area hospital tells me they're seeing a doubling of patients in severe respiratory distress. And this included someone who came to their hospital that uh, was a frontline provider from the mountain commu- from a mountain community. They're, she said they're seeing a lot of appallingly awful chest x-rays, people with pneumonias, very serious pneumonias. She also said that they had other patients who were symptomatic for days, but still had been going back to work. She said, and this is a quote, this is why we so desperately need the stay-at-home order that went out today. This was yesterday. Uh, People won't do it themselves. There's a sense that we're seeing the start of a tsunami that we all hope won't come. And we read that a doctor in New York called that what they're facing now apocalyptic. What are the most pressing issues the state needs to deal with right now? So it's the things that we've been talking about uh, over the last several weeks. Ventilators, uh, these are the machines that help people breathe uh, when when they can't do it on their own. Uh, the governor said we need 7,000. We have far fewer than that at this point. ICU beds, those intensive care unit beds, same thing. And we keep hearing about uh, still a shortage of masks and gloves. Uh, This is called PPE, personal protective equipment. And uh, there's an effort to ramp that up. But uh, still, we're hearing that uh, there, there are shortages and there's worries about more shortages to come. And in the few moments we have left, where are we at with testing? Who's getting tested and should more be tested? Uh, yeah, it continues to be a challenge. The two things are driving the testing, the number of tests available and the time it takes to turn the tests around. And, and, and one other factor, which is those personal protective equipment, you, you want to make sure that the people that are doing the testing are protected. So all those things are, are, are critical. And there is a shortage of that personal protective equipment, gloves and masks right now. Is that right? Yep. That's, uh, you know, that's, what, that's what we're hearing for sure. Thank you so much, John. Okay, you bet. John Daly is CPR's health reporter. He's tracking the efforts to slow down the spread of the coronavirus. You can find ongoing coverage that's updated throughout the day on our website, CPR.org. The spread of the coronavirus and the increasing restrictions to keep people away from each other is proving almost impossible for the state's criminal justice system. Officials want to keep the courts working and keep the virus from sweeping through prisons and jails as it has in other states. They've already begun letting some people out early, and they're asking Governor Jared Polis for more guidance in a situation they have never faced before. I'm joined by CPR's justice reporter, Allison Sherry. Allison, welcome. Thanks, Avery. Good morning. Let's start with the courts. How are they conducting business? Well, uh, you know, the courts right now, in one word, are sort of confused, and almost everyone is doing something different. Um, some judges have delayed all jury trials, like in Boulder and Arapahoe County. Others are going ongoing, and, and lawyers are complaining of crowded conditions, you know, for first court appearances. There aren't enough places to wash hands or socially distance. I spoke um, uh, earlier this week with the state's chief public defender, Megan Ring, who said there's been some positive diagnoses in four of her offices across the street. We understand, and you know, what we keep talking about is our response as an agency really is public health first, which is a very strange place for us to be. But if we really care about our clients, public health means getting as many incarcerated people out as possible. 
And earlier this week, a courthouse in Denver closed after an attorney who'd argued cases there was diagnosed with COVID-19. And so, you know, I think everyone is trying to figure out what to do. This is difficult because these are super important cases for those involved, victims, defendants. And, you know, they need to keep going. Um, some courts have instituted video appearances, but that's kind of hard in a full-on jury trial for a homicide case, for example. And so I think um, everybody is seeking bigger statewide guidance on what to do. And how have courts responded? Well, last week, the state Supreme Court justice, the Chief Justice Nathan Coates, issued guidance delaying jury trials and non-essential hearings. But he also gave the state's 22 judicial districts a lot of leeway to make their own decisions. And as I said, it's been really mixed. And I think people are frustrated that there's not a uniform call on what to do and how to handle this. Why can't they just delay all these trials? Well, they have. There have been a lot of continuances. Um, But it's really complicated because there's the Constitution, right? The Constitution protects um, speedy trial. It's a, def- a defendant's trial has to start within six months of an arraignment when they're officially charged in court. So I talked to Adams County District Attorney Dave Young, who has such packed dockets every single week. They're always running up against that six-month deadline. And he doesn't know what's going to happen if the courts close. He's worried those cases that are up against that deadline will, de- will be dismissed under the Constitution. And some of those cases are quite serious. If we have a homicide case, which we do, set to start on April 6th, we need to know, first of all, who's going to show up for jury duty and how we can fulfill the defendant's constitutional rights to have a fair and impartial jury that fits the community and balance that against his right to speedy trial and not to mention his right to have an open and public trial. There's really no remedy that fits this situation. And that speedy trial provision has not been extended during the pandemic? Well, the Attorney General, Phil Weiser, he called for it to be extended earlier this week. But um, a lot of attorneys think that the law would actually have to be changed, you know, sort of to give um, a pause on speedy trials either. And that won't happen because the legislature is out of session right now. The Supreme Court also could rule on it or put down a ruling, but that hasn't happened yet. In the meantime, are cases getting thrown out because of this deadline? Many cases have been continued. I don't know any that have been tossed out because of the speedy trial deadline, but that's obviously what prosecutors are really worried about, especially the serious cases like we just heard from D.A. Young about. Um, And it's also a real big question on how appellate courts will handle this, too. So this is all pretty unprecedented. Let's talk now about jails in the prisons. You said that there are no cases there yet, right? Well, we're not sure. Like in other places, the testing has been very spotty. I've gotten a lot of tips. Um, and heard from a lot of people whose family members are in prison. Uh, people have symptoms but haven't gotten a test. These are, you know, also people who work in prisons. The Department of Corrections confirmed that nine people in state prisons have been tested so far. Um, and that was as of yesterday, maybe more. I don't know about six of those tests have come back negative and three are still pending. Now, jails are different. You know, there are thousands of people in and out of them every day across the state. So I have no doubt there have been some people who have at least been in contact with people positive for COVID-19, but we just don't know. Both jails and prisons, they're crowded places. What are they doing to keep people at a safe distance? Yesterday, um, Governor Jared Polis put out some guidance about this, Um, you know, to law enforcement, prosecutors, public defenders. CPR got a copy of that guidance. It basically calls for what many sheriffs and others are already doing. They're isolating sick inmates. 
um, releasing nonviolent people from jail, that sort of thing. Um, Polis's guidance also specifically calls for social distancing in jails. Um, but a deputy I talked to in Jefferson County, Mike Taplin, says that's basically impossible because jails to their core are dorms. So you have multiple bunks inside one area. I don't believe you're sleeping more than six feet away from the person that could be below or above you. So what alternatives are they trying? So this isn't happening everywhere, you know, but in some places like Boulder, Jefferson County, we just heard from Mike Taplin, they're letting people out early for nonviolent offenses, particularly if they have just a few months left in a sentence. Um, in Boulder, the district attorney went line by line through all the inmates in the in the jail, about 450 of them. He released 80 early. Um in Jefferson County, they released 36 inmates last week. Yesterday, I talked to the Aurora Public Defender, who's gotten almost 80 people out of jail for nonviolent offenses since March 16th. So there's this big effort statewide to, and they call it decarcerate, um, and that's to try to get the jail populations um, way down. The other thing that's happening is um, some DAs are looking at things like people on work release. So they're they're allowed to leave the jail during the day, go to a job, and then they have to come back at night, check in and sleep there. Um, he's looking at, you know, can they go and sleep at their house and work during the day and have some sort of electronic monitoring instead just to keep them away from these bigger populations. And what else can they do? Well, they're also trying to let people out. If people on um, have, you know, are on nonviolent offend- offenders, they're trying to let them out on non-cash bonds so they won't get stuck there if they don't have any money. They're asking cops, um, uh, and this was in the governor's guidance yesterday, they're asking cops to issue summons to come to court at a future date rather than arresting them and booking them into jail. And briefly, are state prisons taking similar steps? Yeah. And as I mentioned, you know, state, state prisons are a totally different ballgame. These are people who are all serving a sentence. They're not pretrial. They're not innocent until proven guilty. But yes, the State Department of Corrections has put out a bunch of guidance on reducing the number of people inside state prisons, video visitations, volunteers. Um, they're not sending some parolees who have a violation back to prison because they're trying to reduce those populations. You know, the big idea is that these places are not naturally socially distancing Thank- places. And so that's what we're trying to get. They're, they're trying to reduce. Thank you so much, Allison. Thanks, Avery. That's CPR's Allison Sherry. She covers Colorado's criminal justice system. I'm Avery Lill. You're with CPR News. I believe in comeback stories and second chances, and I believe in recovery. I'm Vic Vela. I'm the host of a new recovery podcast called Back From Broken. I'm a recovering cocaine addict myself, and I've been talking to people who've made their own comebacks. I'm proud to be a PTSD survivor. A counselor in therapy has changed my life for the better. Listen and subscribe now at backfrombroken.org or wherever you get your podcasts. A few weeks ago, when Denver Public Schools announced that they'd be closing temporarily due to the coronavirus, art teacher Eddie Egloff spent the weekend trying to figure out how to keep teaching his kids. He posted a Facebook message that Sunday to their parents that offered a link to Mr. E's art class. Now, every morning at 9, his students gather online to draw. How is everybody doing? Give me a thumbs up if you can hear me. Mr. E teaches at Bill Roberts, a K-8 school, and he joins us now. Welcome. Good morning. 
We actually got a tip about your class from your mother, Patty Egloff. You actually weren't excited about the publicity, but tell us a little bit about what you do in your class. Okay, so you want to connect with your kids. You want to stay. You want to stay with them so they know it's okay. You know the younger kids. It's such a scary, strange, confusing time for them. So what we do is we wake up in the morning. The class um, starts at nine, but I open up the chat room. It's on Zoom at eight forty-five, so the kids can all see each other's faces. And there's been between you know a hundred and two hundred kids every morning. The best part of it is is when they see each other. So the first fifteen minutes. They just kind of talk and say things and smile. And then at 9 o'clock, our gym teacher, whose name is uh, John Bellis, does a 10-minute exercise with them just to get them up and going. They dance, they exercise. Then we have a guest reader, and it's been kindergarten teachers. It's been assistant principal. Trish Lee, our principal, is going to be on next week. And then once we do the guest reading, we'll figure out something from that book, and we do a guided drawing together which takes about 15, 20 minutes. And then the kids have an opportunity to show each other their artwork. They post it on the Facebook page. And it's just a really wonderful way to get together during this crazy time. That is so many students to have online at once. How old are these kids who are participating? Well, okay, so the morning class, it's anywhere, I imagine, four years old. uh, I think we've had, we've actually had some adults, which is hilarious, but it's usually four years old to 10 years old. I do a middle school class at two in the afternoon, which doesn't have as big a numbers, but I opened it up to anybody that wants to join. There was um, a family here who has family in Oregon whose kids joined. There was a family from Baltimore. I used to teach at a school called Blessed Sacrament, and so there's kids there. So I opened it up to any kid that wants to join because it's not so much about our school as it is giving these kids and parents something to do every day. So this is sort of one-room schoolhouse style where you have folks of all ages participating. What kind of feedback are you getting from students and from parents? It's, it's been incredibly touching. The parents are very appreciative and supportive. Just today, um, there was a book that arrived in the mail that parents sent me to see if I would read that to an upcoming class. The kids are wonderful, you know, I think the kids are just happy to be a part of something and still seeing each other because they're not able to do that. So when we go on at 845 in the morning, you can just tell they're super excited. And if you go to the Facebook page, a lot of parents have been posting their artwork, which is fun. So they get to see each other there as well. And what kind of things are the kids talking about when they get online in the morning? Oh, it's funny. So the little kids, a lot of it is just seeing their friend and saying hi right away. Now, with 165 or 70 kids on there, every time someone speaks on Zoom, it changes whose picture's on there. So it's super confusing. I think it's more them actually seeing each other's faces than it is having a conversation. With the middle school kids, you know, it's been less than 30 every day. It's actually, hi, how you doing? What have you been doing? And we spend as much time letting them talk as we do any kind of art assignment. And we've heard about teachers doing some innovative things to keep their kids engaged during this time. And many will likely get started with more structured online classes soon. Are teachers at Bill Roberts, other teachers working with kids already? We've been really proactive. All of our teachers have set up rooms where they're just checking in to say hi. Every single one of them has done something where they're just reaching out 
just kind of a well-being check. We're not supposed to start doing any instruction until April 7th. So it's just been, hey, I'm thinking about you. We're here for you. You know, let's get together five times a week, three times a week, whatever it is, and just make sure that we all know that we're still here and thinking about each other. And we know not all students in Colorado have access to Internet at home. Is that a barrier that any of your students face? Well, it is. I mean, at Bill Roberts, it's not as bad. We do have that. I know DPS is trying really hard to get everybody a Chromebook or an iPad or a computer. I know there's been hotspots set up and some companies are providing internet. I wish I had more details on that. But I know we're trying really, really hard to. But it's exposing things that are making us realize we've got to be better at what we do. And one of them is the you know, not all the kids having technology, not all the kids having food, not all kids, you know, having places to go. So as bad as the situation is, I think we're starting to realize we have to get a lot better. And I'm hoping that everybody has access to some kind of technology here within the next few days. So it sounds like it's even prompting more conversations about those inequities. Absolutely. Why have you made it a priority to get kids together to draw and to listen to stories, even virtually? You know, I think most teachers would say the same thing is it's it's our profession. And if you don't love the kids, it's a really tough profession to be in. You know, when you see the kids that are four, five, six, seven, eight, nine years old who are just super confused. You know, kids love snow days. And if we have a snow day, everyone's so happy. But that's not the feeling right now. Like these kids want to be at school. These kids have no idea what's going on. And I think when they see their teachers' faces and we have something for them to do, it puts a little sanity back in their life and just, you know, they know things are going to be okay. Do you have plans for other classes in the weeks ahead? Yeah, the middle school one, um, I'm going to keep doing every day at 2. And then every night at 4 p.m., I'm doing a family trivia game. And that's just to get all the families in front of the computers to kind of be together. And that's, uh, it's a half hour, but what we do is um, I'll do a few family feud questions and a few trivia questions, but I want to do something where the parents can get involved too. And it's, it's been, it's been good so far. Mr. E, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for your time. Eddie Egloff is an art teacher at Bill Roberts, a K-8 through Denver public school. He started a daily art class for his students after DPS announced recently its schools would be closing at least through April 17th. The school plans to transition to remote learning in the upcoming weeks. You can see the kids' drawings on Facebook at Mr. E's Art Class. Art is one way to stay level-headed in tough times. So is tending to houseplants and gardens, which is why we'll get some advice from a master gardener soon. We want your questions. Let's help you set up your herbs for success and get your houseplants thriving. Email your questions to coloradomatters at CPR.org. So one more time, that's coloradomatters at CPR.org. Let's take a break from coronavirus and listen back to a story about determination, achievement, and a special bond between father and daughter. Sailor Schneider's parents met and fell in love on a climbing trip to El Capitan and Yosemite National Park. The 10-year-old grew up hearing stories about that trip, and last summer, 
She made the climb herself with her dad, Mike Schneider, and family friend, Mark Regeer. Sela is the youngest known person to scale El Capitan's 3,000-foot vertical cliff face. I spoke with them in July. How has this experience affected your father-daughter relationship? It was a pretty special time to spend together. I mean, it was one of the best weeks of my life, I think, having this time uh, with Sela climbing and Yeah, I think it brought us really close together. Yeah. And whose idea was it to climb El Capitan? It's something that Sela has talked about for a long time because El Cap is such an important part of our family story. I mean, that's where my wife and I fell in love, and so it's a place we've traveled to. And so I think it's something that Sela really got interested in because she'd seen the pictures and heard the stories. And so it was a real special time, kind of coming full circle in a way in life. And... um. Well, I think before my dad had kind of talked about it, I and I was just kind of thinking, maybe I could do it, maybe someday. You know, I never actually, um, it wasn't until about a year ago that I thought that I would actually do it, like, this year. And tell me about those conversations. How did it go from just an idea of something that you'd do someday to something that you're really actively training to do? Yeah, it. I don't know. It's hard to answer because... It's something we had talked about for a long time, but it's one of those things where it's such a big goal and such a big dream. You just don't know when it's actually going to happen. Of course, inside of me, it was a desire, but I thought it would take many, many more years. Um, but Sailor really was adamant about, you know, she wanted to try it. And so we kind of set a series of goals of, of steps that she had to go through to see if she was ready to tackle something as big as El Cap. And she kept meeting all those goals and working really hard and training really hard. And so that's why finally I was like, okay, I think we're going to give it a go. And I, I don't know that we even knew for sure if we were going to give it a go until this last month, um, just because we really wanted to make sure that she was ready physically and mentally and having all the technical skills that she would need. And even going into Yosemite, we pulled in and she kind of had this big wide-eyed look looking at El Cap and I thought, well, I don't know, maybe this is too big. Maybe she's not going to want to go up there. But she was just gung-ho. It's like, let's go, let's go up there. And, uh, but even along the way, I just wasn't sure those first couple of days whether we'd actually make it or if we'd just go down. Sayla, tell me about those goals. How did you prepare for this? Um, so I think a lot of it is mental, just thinking about, you know, do I actually want to do this? Am I actually ready for this? Um, things like that. Um, physically, I needed to really work on my strengths. I also needed to work on a lot of the technical skills. And, and where did you train for that? Do you want to tell her where you trained for that? Um, I trained for that a lot in my garage. Um, so we would um, just set up ropes in our garage and I could practice um, some of the skills. Then we would also go out to like Rifle, um, Unaweep Canyon, um, a bunch of places, climbing destinations out on the western slope of Colorado. Let's talk about the beginning of the climb. Sela, you led the first segment or the first pitch. What was that like? I think it was just really crazy. Just the thought of, wow, am I actually here? Um, yeah, it was really crazy, just the thought that I was there you know, I'm in Yosemite. I'm at the base of El Cap. And you guys are in it for the long haul. You made it to the top in five days. Walk me through what those days were like. Basically, you know, every day you wake up in the morning, uh, eat some 
breakfast, go to the bathroom, pack up your camp, get ready to climb for the next day. And and so then basically once you start climbing, you, you just start climbing uh, all day. Uh, we did take some long lunch breaks because we had the party in front of us, so we, we didn't have to really rush. I'd say snack breaks. We never Snack breaks. I guess we're not having like a full deli lunch up there, are we? But we, we are eating some good snacks and drinking water and relaxing on ledges while we're up there. Uh, but I mean, that's basically what you're doing. You know, you're probably climbing for eight to 12 hours a day and then trying to get to where you want to camp but before dark. And by camp, you know, like El Cap is pretty steep and sheer, but there's definitely some ledges along the way that make camping a little bit easier. Uh, we have a portal ledge, which is like a portable cot that hangs from the side of the cliff that we can sleep on. Um, and then we have to haul our gear as we climb. So someone will climb up a pitch and lead it. And then they start hauling gear while uh, the second person starts cleaning it. And that was usually Sela. And what does cleaning a route mean? A cleaning a route is, so my dad, he would lead up, put up the rope, and um, then I was usually the second person to jug up, and by jugging, I'm um, just pulling myself up a rope with something called ascenders, um, and they can go up the rope, but not down. And um, when I clean, so I'm taking those pieces of gear that he's put in, and um, they're still clipped into the rope, so I have to take the unclip them from my rope and take them out. Uh, so you have to carry all your food and water up there, your sleeping bags, any extra clothes. Um, we had a little stove, and so you know your day really gets consumed by packing up, climbing, and then unpacking and camping and uh, and eating. So it, it's kind of like vertical backpacking. And I want to know more about camping on a sheer rock face. Sayla, tell me more about what that was like. To be honest, I really like uh, sleeping up there. Um, I love the sunsets. It really, some of them reminded me of rainbows because they were all the colors of the rainbow. <laughs> um, some of them reminded me of cotton candy because they were the exact colors of, of like the blue and the pink of cotton candy. And I think because the ledges, you know, they're not 50, they're not 100 feet long, you know, they're pretty small, um, and so you're always really close to people, and I think that can really help bond your relationship. It is kind of neat, because you cook together and do all these things together, so you really become a tight-knit group, you know, because you do have to kind of work together with things. Everything's always clipped in when you're up there, you know, like, you think about, um, you know, everything, your sleeping bag, your your stove is clipped into the wall like your water bottles have little hooks on them so you can clip them into the wall um everything's clipped in when you're camping up there um uh, yeah. and that's including yourself you're completely tied in the whole time yeah, yes. yeah. and and that includes even when we're sleeping because a really common question we get is well what happens if you roll in the middle of the night and roll out of bed and so you're still tied in the entire time, even that's, when you're sleeping. That's the one thing I don't like about sleeping on a portal edge. Um, I'm wiggly when I sleep. Um, <laughs> so not and, enough rolling over on the side of the mountain. And so when I wake up in the night or in the morning, I'll usually be wrapped up in rope. <laughs> 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 now, I want to talk about getting to the top in a minute, but Sayla, are there any moments on the wall that you're really proud of? I think when we got past um, the cane swing and the boot flake, 
um, I think that was really special for me because um, now I knew that, you know, we're, it's going to be harder to get down than it is up now. Mm, is and, that the halfway um, point? Yeah. Was there ever a moment when you didn't think you'd make it to the top? Well, I don't actually, no, not really. I think that mostly it was just, it wasn't a 100% chance that we would get to the top. I was worried that something would happen, you know, maybe someone's going to fall and get hurt, or um, maybe we drop something. Um, Just that can worry me a lot, Um, the thought that we might not get to the top. Um, Our our big motto all throughout the climb was, how do you eat an elephant? Small bites. (laughs) And we talked about that a lot, especially because at the beginning we were behind a a slower group. And so it caused us to change our game plan a little bit because we we were planning on four days. And then all of a sudden we're like, okay, I think we're going to have to take five days if we do this. So do we have enough food, enough water, and do we have enough grit and perseverance to do five days? Because it's a lot of work being up there. And um, so we just try to take every day one step at a time, one pitch at a time. Um, and even just individual moves, you know, just focusing on the little things uh, to get to the top of a big goal. Um, and so I know early on, I think we had more doubts because it's a lot harder at the bottom because you have a lot of weight that you're hauling up the, the wall, a lot of water and a lot of food. And, and, you know, water weighs a lot. We probably started out with about, I think we had about 12 gallons of water at the start. So it's about 100 pounds. And so that's a lot of weight to carry. So I think we had some doubts early on, um, but we really just tried to have a good positive attitude about it and take it one step at a time. And as the days went on, like Sayla said, once we got past the boot flake and the king swing, we're like, okay, like, I think we're, we're, we're doing pretty good here. Let's just keep make, making sure that we're doing things right and we don't make a mistake or have, have an accident happen or keep an eye on the weather that there's not a big storm coming in. And obviously climbing is so much a part of both who you are and, who, and your family's life. But it's also full of risks that you've both alluded to. Were there parts of the climb that made you nervous as a father? I'm a climbing guide, and I've been climbing and instructing and teaching climbing for a long time. So I'm always really aware of the risk of what we do. I don't know that there was any particular moment where I was particularly worried. Sayla really showed herself to be really adept at the skills that she needed. And I know for myself when I was leading or my friend Mark when he was leading and we were putting up the rope, uh, we were always very conscious of the dangers, the risks. And, and that could be things like sharp rock. You don't want your rope to get abraded over sharp rock. So we really were keeping an eye on things like that. We were really just keeping an eye on her as well as ourselves, that we were having good backups, that we are doing things right. Um, and that's just something that I think has happened for me, like become a real habit after a long time of climbing and a long time of guiding and teaching climbing. So there was never a moment where I I think I felt like she was at any particular risk. It was just kind of more overall, just a general mindset that we had. Now, Sayla, I want you to tell me about that moment when you made it to the very top of this 3000 foot climb. What were you feeling? Pizza, ice cream, river. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it was really emotional. I was just thinking about, did I just do this? Um, it was kind of amazing for me that I had actually done it. 
I never, I never thought that day would come. <laughs> Mike, you've climbed El Cap a few times before. Did climbing it with your daughter make you see it any differently? I really, I tried to keep my emotions in check. I was like, oh, I just don't want to, I don't want to consider it guaranteed that we're going to get to the top until we're actually at the top. And when that finally happened and I saw her like crying happy tears, which she said she had never had a happy cry before, um, that was pretty special. And it really made me, you know, just think back to all these things in my life that had brought me to this point of, you know, meeting my wife and having kids and dreaming about climbing El Cap someday with my kids and to have it come to fruition was pretty powerful. And and I don't even know that it's really set in yet. And Sayla, now that it's been a couple of weeks, do you feel like you processed it yet? No. I think for the most part I have, but I don't think I'll ever really be able to fully process it. I, I think sometimes something so big like this it's going to take a long time to really understand. And it's almost, I feel like we need to go climb something else and maybe even fail on something else. And then, and then maybe we'll realize how special it was. I think we were all just kind of coming to terms with climbing El Cap. And that's how I felt with every time I've climbed El Cap. It's always such a big experience and it's so hard to wrap your head around. Um, and so, yeah, I still, I think I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> thank you both for talking to me. Yeah. Thank you. We appreciate it. Sayla Schneider climbed El Capitan with her father, Mike Schneider. Sayla was 10 at the time and the youngest known person to have climbed El Capitan. The Schneiders live in Glenwood Springs. We spoke in July and we wanted to reshare their story in this time of anxiety about the special connections and celebrations that are so important. Finally today, each month our colleagues at ND1023 feature Colorado musicians as a part of the Local 303. With March being Women's History Month, they've highlighted some of the state's best female artists, including Downtime. Denver Band is headed up by Alyssa Maunders. Their first full-length album, Hurts Being Alive, came out earlier this month. The group describes themselves and their music as grandma jams. Downtime worked with another Denver band to produce this album, Tennis, who we had on the show last month to talk about their recent release. Here's tennis singer and keyboardist Elena Moore. I make all of my music with my husband, and we are childless. Um, all of my friends are having babies, but I'm making albums. <laughs> now Alyssa Maunders of Downtime also had thoughts about what a woman's normal relationship looks like. Here's she's discussing the song No Sentiment. When I was writing it, I was thinking about uh, emotional connections with people and places like most songwriters do and thinking like maybe it's cool if you are more separated from it and try to keep a distance from it. 
That's Denver band Downtime, one of the local 303 artists featured by our colleagues at Indie 1023 this month. Their new album, Hurts Being Alive, is out now. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill. You're listening to CPR News.